As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back, people. I know so many have wondered, is the Malcolm effect coming back? And of course, come on, man. Like, Besides what I hope this platform is has become, I hope it's beneficial. Besides that, this is literally me doing my learning in public in many, of, in many ways. The guests, the topics are things I find interesting, and I hope others find them interesting in the realm of political education in a way that's accessible. So with that said, I thought to myself, after the hiatus, who else would be a better guest than the infamous Issa? Welcome to the Malcolm Effect. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. You know, me and you, we, we've been in contact for a while and this episode has been sort of simmering for a, a long time. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, it has been long overdue, right? Our first conversations about potentially doing an episode goes all the way back to, to February of this year, right? And, and that feels wow. like, like a lifetime ago. And so for all of the people who are unfamiliar with me, my name is Issa. I am a, trans, I am a transsexual Marxist-Leninist. The majority of my analysis that you see publicly will be with response to um, things like the sex trade, anti-blackness, as well as just the uh, sort of general values and principles of Marxism-Leninism, which is uh, something like anti-imperialism is a very important part of, as well as everything in between from the philosophical side to the sort of more material histories of things like the American deep state, world politics, world history, and and all of that fun stuff. So yeah, again, thank you for for having me on. It's always a blessing to be in your presence. Nah, 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 nah. Issa is the teacher. I am the student and classes in session. Honestly, I came across, I had the fortunate experience of coming across Issa on Twitter spaces. And Issa was just slaying the demons, correcting narratives. And it came with such an ease. I thought, yeah, I need to have an episode with Issa. And I'm inspired and I consider Issa one of my teachers. So today's topic is on the sex trade and sex trade expansionism. Why I felt it necessary to have this conversation because I have had to go through an ideological shift in on this matter because I, you know, through the kind of dominant narratives out there seem to speak to if you're a man, you have no say in the bodily autonomy of women, no matter what. And kind of an expression of that was okay women's choice to be sex workers or in the sex trade is their choice and as a man and no one should have an opinion on that but then when i came across the arguments isa was putting forward and, and others like isa i was like okay cool this is an interesting take so break it down for us isa what's the deal with the sex trade and how do we have a materialist analysis of the sex trade yeah, I think that the the topic of the sex trade is one of the most contentious topics within the Western left that is being uh, sort of monopolized on by a litany of voices, many of whom have no direct sort of experiences with prostitution. I think that a lot of 
people have been ideologically sort of conditioned to either not inquire too deeply about the topic of the sex trade in fear of being lambasted as a chauvinist or someone who is prodding their nose where it doesn't belong, or on the flip side, we see the sort of reactionary critiques of the sex trade that have been sort of rolled out by the right, right, wherein they use a sort of more of an evangelist sort of a disgust for sexual openness, as well as just a, the general culture that we have sort of built among ourselves in the modern day with a sort of more openness with discussing the sexual. What I am here to provide, however, is the Marxist-Leninist line on prostitution and the sex trade to which prostitution is a function of, but not representative of, in its totality. Before I go into the ins and outs of the sex trade and why I have come to oppose it during my time, I want to first of all say that I am a 20-year-old trans woman and I have had multiple experiences with prostitution and the sex trade throughout my life. This is a common experience that you'll see with a lot of other trans women who usually are not the objects of desire in the eyes of like a cis-heteropatriarchal society. And thus prostitution, to some extent, is glamorized, especially by those who feel that they are not desired by general civil society, quote unquote. But However, this does not justify the continued existence of the sex trade. Figures like Marx and Engels called for the abolition of prostitution, both public and private, if you've ever read the Communist Manifesto. They also condemned sexual communism as vilely reducing women to the property, as property to be redistributed, and called the state-run brothels in ancient Athens the worst condemnation of the Athenian family. Anybody wondering what the sources for those are, you can check the Communist Manifesto pages 24 and 25, Private Property and Communism, The Origin of the Family by Friedrich Engels, specifically page 34. And I would suggest everyone read those as well as the litany of other sort of Marxist analyses of prostitution. A lot of Western communists tend to have a misunderstanding of Marx with response to this question. And an often told imperialist lie is that prostitution is, quote, the world's oldest profession. Now, I think that that's interesting because, one, categorically, it is not. But two, this is a phrase coined by none other than the genocidal colonist and sex trade expansionist king, Rudyard Kipling, the author of The White Man's Burden, who justified the travel of sex paths from Europe into India and referred to Filipino children as half-devil, half-child. To use this phrase not only further naturalizes an already existent mode of oppression directly bound up with the institutionalization of private property, a general division of labor, and lumpen proletarianization as a phenomena, but also mystifies its origin and regards the sex trade as a natural component feature of human life no different from the need to drink water or to eat food. Now, taking this phrase and breaking it down, even in its most literal form, which is what is the oldest sort of profession? I could think of a couple of things that are older professions than prostitution, namely midwifery, agriculture, hunting, etc. Now, let's really get into the weeds on this matter. Well, I'll have you know that the first historical mention of prostitution was around 2400 BC in ancient Sumeria, which was a society whose mode of production was that of slavery and patriarchal property relations. So the origin of prostituting women and children is directly linked to the regulation of not only women's sexualities, but the majority or the litany, I should say, of gender diverse communities, which even in some contexts includes cisgender men. 
which I think are sometimes pushed out of the conversation with response to the sex trade and the exploitation laden within it. Although mystical tales are told about uh, sacred prostitutes who acted as sort of caregivers to the downbeaten and downtrodden, this, of course, is none other than an imperialist myth used to justify one of the oldest forms of exploitation. See Gerda Lerner, which in her masterful work titled The Origin of Prostitution in Ancient Mesopotamia, correctly notes that slavery became an established institution and slave owners rented out their female slaves as prostitutes and some masters set up commercial brothels staffed by slaves. And similar to today, which these insights are not uniquely my own, but I do find it interesting that similar to today, the ruling class of the time not only uses women for sexual pleasure, but also displays them as symbols of wealth and power. It is the men's appropriation of women's sexual and reproductive capacities, which laid the foundation for private property, for the institutionalization of patriarchy, and for the outgrowth of class society itself, which inherently necessitated the subordination of women to men. In every stage of colonialism, whether they be the brothels or red light districts that appeared in the earliest stages of colonization in Algeria, India, Senegal, Hawaii, etc., all of these different things involved massive efforts of sex trade expansionism. Even in Asia, for example, Japanese women were shipped and trafficked throughout the colonies of East Asia, right? And so what we are getting at here is that the sex trade is no more than a function of imperialist violence. Imperial domination, by virtue of what it is, in more cases than not, will necessitate a, a dimension of sexual exploitation laid into that sort of imperial domination. Reminiscent of the tactics used by contemporary primps and, and brothel owners who seek to sanitize the sex trade by trying to refer to transactions between, say, older men and teenaged women as sugar daddies or sugar babies, it is well documented that like the slavers of old who tried to sanitize the slave trade, <laughs> we see the same attempts now. For example, there is a letter from 1789 written by a pro-slavery strategist from the West Indies who noted, quote, instead of slaves, let the Negroes be called assisted planters, and we shall not then hear of such violent outcries against the slave trade by pious divines, tender-hearted poetesses, and short-sighted politicians. And he goes on to say that a Negro removed from the West Indies is placed in a climate much more agreeable to a laborer than the burning plains of Africa. His work in the plantations is not harder or more oppressive than that of our common laborers in England, such as miners, blacksmiths, founders, scavengers, coal heavers, and, and many others whose situation is viewed by those very humane and compassionate people who are advocates for their African brethren without the least concern. Yet most of these try and have been compelled by necessity to leave the place of their nativity. The vulgar are influenced by names and titles. Let the Negroes then be called assistant planters. And I think that it is actually quite interesting how a lot of this discourse of old mimics the discourse of today, where we see the sanitation of sexual exploitation through euphemism. Right. And I think that this is one of the ways in which sex trade expansionism and the existence of the sex trade itself justifies its continued existence. And of course, the sex trade expansionists and the preservationists will inevitably accuse us of having our opposition to the sex trade being rooted in some sort of moral aversion, what they like to call Puritanism. But I think that this is very interesting, for it is a lot easier to refer to us, the people who want to abolish the sex trade, as closeted evangelicals than to deal with the objective reality that many an evangelical, whether it be the Saint Augustine or any of these different priests 
priests or pastors all justified the sex trade as a socially necessary labor industry and justified it on the basis that without the existence of the sex trade, men would be driven to commit rape and mass in droves. And I think that in the same way, the way that modern day discourse mirrors the discourse of old should be very indicative of whose hands we are playing into. In the imperialist epoch, we see the contradictions laid into the pre-imperialist era that people like Marx and Engels wrote within heighten to extreme degrees and expand into global markets and have even development. Joseph Stalin himself correctly asserted Leninism as Marxism of, of the era of imperialism and proletarian revolution. And of course, this epoch still exists and therefore Leninism retains its validity in full. Now, what we see with this expansion of imperialism, again, is no more than a natural outgrowth of, <laughs> or I should say that the sex trade is a natural outgrowth of imperialism. And that is, among many other things, the basis upon which Marxists historically, from all of the days of the utopian socialists to the socialists of today, have opposed the sex trade. You see why I had Esau on, yeah? You see why I had Esau on, yeah? <laughs> that was one of the most elaborate, eloquent cases made against the sex trade. So, Isa, let's break it down. Let's think of some of the arguments that people talk about, you know, because I think sometimes there's a use in polemics. So how would you respond to people say, well, it's merely a question of bodily autonomy for women? I think this is actually one of the more interesting ways in which sex trade expansionism has been turned into an ostensibly left-wing position where people turn it into an issue of bodily autonomy against a sort of puritanical culture by which people are imbued within, born in from the cradle, and will exist within until their time in the grave. And I would go so far as to say that the people who leverage these claims of this being no more than a struggle for bodily autonomy are actually obscurantist par excellence. The struggle for bodily autonomy should, at the very least, include the struggle for the right to exit, for the right of people who are trapped within the sex trade to be able to leave its violent mechanisms. Does not is not the one being forced to sell nothing but themselves to others, is this not a gross violation of bodily autonomy? To what extent are we taking bodily autonomy? And are we going to continue to, to kowtow to the sort of liberal understanding of bodily autonomy, which is rooted in a sort of uh, tepid individualism by which people used to <laughs> sort of undergird their understandings of what it means to be an autonomous person? The way in which we see agency and choice used to justify the continued existence of imperialist institutions is one of the most insidious outgrowths of academia having a, such a stranglehold on the Western left at large. And I think that when we acknowledge that which makes up the majority of those in the sex trade are a part of the lumpen proletariat, that we have a tacit recognition of this objective reality, that the majority of the people in the sex trade are already a part of an underclass. Now, I think that that is interesting because today, that which chiefly sustains the existence of the lumpen proletariat is imperialism. 
as the refuse of all classes, as Marx put it, and the rotting decay of so-called civil society and those who are pushed outside of its formal enclosures, the lumpen proletariat lies beneath even the proletarian himself. Ergo, choice is compounded infinitely more by illegal measures outside of the frames of what's generally acceptable before the law than formal legal opportunities in the form of wage labor proper. Therefore, choice fails as a substantive marker by which to understand populations deprived of power under the rule of the capitalist class, even when noting that this choice or these options largely rest on illusory grounds with the threat of poverty. Choice here, understood as the extent to which one is able to choose a route of work for the prostituted lumpen proletarian, is superfluous for what other choice is granted to him than that which is outside of the formal enclosures of bourgeois democratic society itself. To believe that prostitutes are not under coercion because the absence of physical force, though in many situations physical force is a determining factor in soliciting sex from people who are stuck in the sex trade, is to misunderstand that money and capital acts as the first social in capitalist society and is one with significantly more power in the context of those who are outside of its formal enclosures. Thus, the idealism laid into the claim of this being no more than a struggle for bodily autonomy can be seen in full force. Now, I do want to assert that no, not everyone who is in the sex trade is there because of a terrible experience where they had nothing else to give up but themselves and to perform the most crude form of labor imaginable. And I do recognize that to some extent, there is a contingency of people who have the ability to voluntarily enter and exit the sex trade uh, whenever they so choose. But the problem here, however, is that this is an, this is a minority when we're talking about statistics and are in no way representative of the overwhelming majority of experiences that women have in the sex trade, like myself. And I think that it is a spit in the face to everyone who has had to endure sexual violence at the hands of people who want to introduce an economic lever in order to penetrate our bodies to tell us that we are the actual ones who are puritanical and that it is we who are closeted evangelists, closeted Christians, closeted Muslims, or whatever have you, than to assess the objective reality that consent is not something which should be put on the market, nor should sex be commodified and easily accessible to people for no other purpose than to satisfy uh, the desires of a buyer. I really fundamentally sort of reject the premise of the argument that this is no more than a struggle for bodily autonomy. And if your notions of bodily autonomy are so toothless, so liberal, so defamed as for you to be able to assert that the only substantive marker of bodily autonomy is the ability to enter and not the ability to exit, then you yourself are a charlatan, you're a chauvinist, and you are an American exceptionalist par excellence. And people will wonder why I say that this is American exceptionalism, but what else could this be other than American exceptionalism? It's a sort of, in my view, it's a sort of internalizing of American individualism, but only to the, but they only understand individualism to the extent that it benefits them or grants them personal benefits to which they are able to mooch off of. But when we're speaking, not even but, when we're speaking of the sex trade, I mean, you've elaborately laid out the function of the sex trade, its origins. But what about the discussion of like sex work, other forms of sex work? For example, our generation, OnlyFans. What's the discussion here? I think that a lot of the discussions that we have nowadays with response to different forms of sexual labor that aren't exactly uh, what what some people would call full full service sex work is a sort of more 
sort of an easier discourse to, to, to plow through. I do want to, however, note that OnlyFans uh, combines the worst elements of the gig economy as well as a predation upon a sort of younger audience in order to sell people the illusion that if one makes an OnlyFans account, that they will be getting a sort of get-rich-quick scheme and that this is a lot easier than traditional forms of labor. Now, of course, I do think that the proper sort of line by which Marxists should be rolling out with response to the sex trade and, 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 and sex work more broadly is, of course, supporting decriminalization. Decriminalization is an authentically proletarian demand, but must be paired with the right to exit, right? And I think that when we talk about things like OnlyFans or any of these other MLMs, which more often than not lure people in with sort of false promises that something that we should keep in mind is OnlyFans is a service that takes a great deal out of the paycheck of the people who are forced to use it, right? Like OnlyFans, if I recall correctly, and I could be incorrect, so you know, if you're listening to this, I would suggest like going on Google and <laughs> seeing this for yourself, but I'm pretty sure that OnlyFans takes like 20% of one's income. And the actual problem that a lot of people have today with understanding the modern struggle for decriminalization. I just want to say that you're right. I just Googled it. It's 20%. So oh, right. wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was really just shooting off of, off of memory there, but you know, I, I could have been wrong. And I think that when we're talking about decriminalization, we must, by necessity, be speaking of the right to exit. And again, these are progressive measures and they are authentically proletarian demands, even in the context of bourgeois democratic society. And thus they should be supported, but only with the addendum that bourgeois democratic equality before the law is not the be-all end-all of liberation. And thinking beyond on the scope of equality before the letter and in the frame of sublating the present state of things should be the order of the day for every socialist or everyone who calls themselves a socialist, I should say, should be taking into account. And that's sort of how I think of these things. I also do want to point out that um, a lot of these organizations that, uh, you know, these, these big porn companies, for example, I, I think it's Pornhub, all of these different sort of industries or, or companies, whatever have you, uh, something interesting that I've learned recently is that they have a scary amount of sort of investment in Israeli tech. And I think that this points to another reality, which is that, you know, the sex trade is deeply bound up with global finance capital and is sanctioned on part of a lot of these imperial institutions. And I would also sort of add that People who comprise the upper stratum of people who are engaged in sexual labor, for example, your average white OnlyFans socialist who has like a three-story house, that these are a global minority and that the majority of people within the sex trade and even a lot of the people who are on OnlyFans themselves are being choked for resources, right? They're having their paycheck skimmed or yeah, skimmed. And <laughs> in a lot of different ways, I kind of hate that OnlyFans and these different companies have become the dominant mode by which we understand prostitution and, and sex work more broadly but that's almost another conversation <laughs> <laughs> and it's definitely a conversation that i'm going to have you back on for and i'm sure that many we will have many more conversations on many different topics so i want to then inquire and and speak to you then because i know you face a lot of backlash and people coming after you what are some of the arguments or what are their points and what are their contentions or what are their rebuttals, if any? Yeah, there are a few rebuttals. And in a sense, I understand where some of them come from for a lot of people have 
uh, not really, really had any sort of exposure to principled opposition to the sex trade. And the majority, uh, you know, of the people that they'll see in their personal life who have a strong disdain for the sex trade, more often than not, are conservatives, right? And so the most common objection that I get when I'm speaking about the sex trade is, uh, well, Issa, I don't think your experiences in the sex trade were actual sex work. And the sort of logic that undergirds this counter argument is that there has been an erased distinction between choosing to work and being forced to work. And I think that this, alongside a lot of other, you know, sort of liberal arguments are, they fall flat on them on their faces. And the reason why I would say this is that choice understood as the sort of extent to which people are able to choose a road of work, again, is a superfluous notion for someone who is a part of the lumpen proletariat, right? What is the lumpen proletariat? The lumpen proletariat is not just another segment of the working class. And the only way how people get this as a conclusion is because it has proletariat slapped onto the end of it. But anybody who has done a sort of serious analysis of class society itself understands that the lumpen proletariat is what Marx refers to as the refuse of all class. That which sinks to the bottom and and decays of capitalist society is not a class, but rather that which sort of falls off of the edge, so to speak. And I think that when we talk about this claim that I am conflating the difference between sex trafficking and sex work, despite the fact that I've been involved in both, unfortunately, I think that there is a sort of concession within this argument, right, which should be blatantly apparent. But if it's not, I'll spell it out. If one accepts that sex work can be a a coerced work, yet remain work, then it follows that our experiences with coercion in the trade don't cease to be experiences with work once we experience coercion. Now, I do think that there are categorical distinctions between your average person engaged in, say, proper sex work and someone who is being sex trafficked. But the insistence on part of these chauvinists that my own experiences, which I don't ever use as a crutch for an argument, are somehow illegitimate or inauthentic experiences because I have the realities that a lot of other trans women have, which is that our autonomy is violently torn from us and we more often than not, don't have any means by which to exit and this sort of hangs over our heads like a specter for the rest of our lives is is kind of, I think it's an ill-fated argument. And I think that it is incredibly chauvinistic. Now, some other expansionists will inevitably allege that critique of the trade, even from socialists, will inevitably give cannon fodder to reactionaries. This holds true neither. In truth, the conceding of ground to the right on such an important topic part and parcel to Marxism itself, if you want to have a serious understanding of patriarchy, responsible for the left's general unattentiveness with response to imagining futures beyond the horizons of bourgeois democratic struggle for equality before the law, is actually to blame here. That is not to say that such things aren't of grave importance for people outside of our own little bubbles to have an understanding of. But when we make critiquing such a thing such a taboo on the left and that all voices who speak out against the sex trade are labeled dissidents or turfs or swerfs or whatever have you, then again, we can see how we kind of got in this conundrum in the first place. When you are so comfortable making these unnecessary concessions to the right wing and allowing these these reactionary sects who fancy themselves feminists critique over the sex trade that is grounded in a sort of immaterial analysis, then that's kind of what we get. And I think that people who are unable to distinguish between a reactionary criticism and a criticism that is perfectly in line with the revolutionary traditions, not only of us as Black people, but us as Marxists and Marxist-Leninists specifically, is, of course, silly. Other 
sort of defenders of the sex trade will say that violence in the trade only happens because of criminalization. And I think that, again, this is a hackneyed argument used by people who don't actually understand the implications of what they're saying. Of course, I would never deny that the police are a large source of violence against people who are forced into the sex trade, especially those who are made to be lumpen proletarian. But to lump all the violence we experience and, and, you know, we have as experiences in the sex trade as just an experience with criminalization is incorrect and attempts to present a sort of simple response to a very nuanced topic, right? Rape, for example, is not just a workplace hazard comparable to someone working a McDonald's job, right? And there is a sort of natural proximity to violence one is being pushed into when we talk about the sex trade comparative to, say, a desk job. And so when people collapse violence and and our experiences with violence on hands of people who want to solicit sex from us under the rubric of, well, this wouldn't happen to you if it weren't criminal, what chauvinists they are, right? And this is just, again, incredibly sort of hackneyed argument, right? We experience violence primarily because the relationship between us and our clients, more often than not, is an antagonistic relationship, right? These different, I refuse to call them sessions, but since that's what a lot of people call them, right? The session between a buyer and someone who is being bought is always a power struggle between these two parties and what their interests are as individuals, right? And Yeah, I'm pretty sure that there are other arguments that people levy against me. I know that a popular one is that opposition to the sex trade is inherently a SWERF position. In this context, SWERF is an acronym, which stands for Sex Worker Exclusionary Radical Feminist. But also these allegations are, again, superfluous. Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, all of these people had an aversion to the sex trade and recognized it for what it was, a finger on the hand of imperialism, which at the time was represented by its dominant unipolar hegemon, the United States, or in the case of Marx, I think it would be like Britain, right? And so when we're talking about so being sex worker exclusionary, this claim falls flat on its face once again. The majority of women who are coerced into the sex trade and have their autonomy stripped away from them because their experiences are being compounded by destitution, penury, imperialism, transmisogyny, etc. These are the people who comprise the core, the center of our analyses of the sex trade, unlike these reactionaries who fancy themselves feminists, who in reality don't care anything about sex workers. And I think that oftentimes the allegations of swerfism are sort of opportunistically deployed when these people themselves don't actually have any sort of understanding of the sex trade and what our experiences generally are. And a lot of the time, people's so-called solidarity is conditioned by personal interests more so than a genuine striving for liberation. Another counter argument that I oftentimes get is the sort of allegation that, well, isn't all work bad? Why would you single out like prostitution or, or sex work more broadly? And the answer to this- I love is, the accent you did for that one. Yeah. <laughs> all work bad? Yeah. It's just like, the, the answer to this is because we are Marxists, right? And so appealing to some general truth about labor exploitation being a necessary function of capitalism is not a substantive enough answer to sort of give us a reason why certain labor-intensive industries are more dangerous than others. There can be no general 
truth without particularity. And so certain industries by nature of what capitalism is, right, what this sort of uneven development is, right, necessitates some jobs to be more dangerous than others. And yes, you can implement measures by which people can use for personal safety. For example, if you're a fry cook and you work on a hot stove all day, your chances of being burned are going to be pretty high. Right. And it's not because we have a sort of moral condemnation of your form of work or because we revile your social existence and see you as a hedon because we are all closeted carriers of the cross or whatever nonsense. Right. It's because you are literally putting yourself in proximity to a hot stove. Yes, you could implement a labor measure, get somebody like gloves to use. I don't know. Right. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you cannot completely reform away that violence. And again, this isn't a point that this isn't an insight that is uniquely mine. This has been made on part of dozens of other trans women who have similar experiences in the sex trade. And, and similarly, right, it's not so much that we're singling out sex work or prostitution as a form of labor, but rather we refuse to kowtow to this sort of general truism that like, oh yeah, all work is exploitative. Yes, all work is exploitative. Or I should say the majority of work is exploitative, but this again is not substantive enough to really fill in the why of, you know, why are certain forms of labor more dangerous than others, right? Why are certain forms of labor more necessary than others, right? And I challenge this assertion on its face all of the time. I, I just think that it, it's a way to wiggle out of answering a more difficult question of what are the specificities and experiences sort of inherent to taking up a particular form of work than others, right? And yeah, I, I think the, <laughs> I, I think that those are... I think you yeah, like yeah. laid out the arguments and responded to them very, extremely adequately. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I find myself in these discourses pretty often. And I mean, I kind of get it to an extent, but some mm-hmm. of the arguments are just very, very silly. Very silly. The shit. <laughs> yes, I, I do want to be the one to say it. Because like... I try and engage with people in good faith as possible. And while I might yeah. while I might shit talk people every once in a while, I do try and understand the basis upon which their arguments rest. But mm-hmm. when we have people who are so devoid of any critical thinking skills, who are so toothless and defanged and really, again, have their sort of quote-unquote solidarity premised by personal gain, and they're willing to throw out these different acronyms and terms in order to avoid a real conversation, it does get frustrating. Like, like uh, something that I hear semi often is that i'm i'm like a turf or whatever which is incredibly funny because one i'm yeah. a trans woman and two yeah. right, opposition to the sex trade is not a uniquely turf position and a lot of turfs quote-unquote turfs i should say don't actually even oppose the sex trade right and the basis yep. upon which some of them oppose the sex trade are not the same reasons for say a marxist leninist would oppose the sex trade and i think that when we start to get into this business of unnecessarily smearing trans women for speaking on our experiences because we refuse to be quiet about the violent tearing away of our autonomy that we experience and these things that mm-hmm. we literally have to live with for the rest of our lives. I just think that it's chauvinistic, right? For someone to throw out the allegation that I myself am a turf or I went to see prostituted women incarcerated en masse is chauvinism par excellence, right? Did not this entire year happen already, right? Like my missing persons case was an incredibly public thing, right? This was something that was trending across the globe, like number four or or number five out of like the top 10, right? And I mean, like, 
I had been opposing the sex trade prior, but when people start to invalidate our experiences or tell us that our experiences with sexual exploitation weren't actually experiences with work because we didn't consent to it, I just find it chauvinistic. And you know, again, this is <laughs> I, I you can tell that I've had you know a lot of these arguments before, but I, I think that they're important. I think that understanding no, where absolutely. other people are coming from is, is is a good thing. Absolutely, and then it's important that we respond. You've elaborately laid out and quite in a lot of detail why abolition or abolition of the sex trade is also part and parcel of this global socialist revolution so in a very basic way when people say you know here on the left as well you hear things like oh under communism there would be no sex work could you mind just breaking that down for us yes of course now i want to say that this is a in my opinion at least uh, some of the goofiest discourse that that we see (laughs) sort of like in the western left generally i think that it is uh, just an incredibly tiring discourse but what i will say is that when i speak of prostitution i'm speaking of it in the context and the confines of capitalism imperialism and therefore prostitution takes on a specific character under capitalism imperialism animated by things like penury right social isolation uh, you know destitution right and all of these different things are anchored to class society itself and it relies on the upkeep of an underclass of women which you know is the lumpen proletariat who are bereft of the means of production and are subservient more often than not to buyers as the bought and that is why we say that socialism means the abolition of the sex trade marx noted that if the proletariat is to emancipate itself it is to see the means of production, including that which underlines the character of those prostituted and questions of sex work, quote unquote, under socialism, me- inherently means the loss of this character and thus becomes sex plain and simple. The, the opposition to the sex trade is not about a puritanical policing of one's own sexual and uh, private lives. No, we just argue that sex should not be on sale for a market and that consent is not something to be bought. Now, somebody could reply and say that, well, you're not buying a consent, you're buying it. You're, you're not buying consent, right? You're buying a service. But this argument is one built on a house of cards balanced on a grain of sand, right? Because when once you start to try and erase the distinctions between different forms of services that are able to be bought from people, then you have fundamentally lost a plot with what Marxism is about, right? And so when we're talking about sex work under communism or, or socialism or whatever, you know, this just would be sex, plain and simple. Anybody who has a sort of like strongly rooted aversion to that reality is not a communist. They are not a socialist. They are a social democrat who likes red aesthetics. <laughs> yeah. They are a social democrat who likes red aesthetics. <laughs> I think I'm going to, what a way to end it. But you know what? <laughs> As you said, this is going to be one of my favorite episodes. And I have to listen to this like hundred times because this was amazing i got like notes i'm out here googling words for meaning so i can carry the conversation (laughs) (laughs) so honestly uh, but i need a commitment from you isa on air so i can keep playing this evidence you're gonna come back on again yes i will i can come back on again i can talk about anything you want right i could talk about like anti-revisionism the sino-soviet split the sex trade, right? Because there are a lot of topics that we didn't even get into here, right? For example, like the the family form that Engels talks about in family private property in the States or the common argument that like men and women comprise unique social classes in themselves and thus are antagonistic and have antagonistic interests or even just like the general 
history of like gender depression as it pertains not only to transsexual people, but also cisgendered people and, and, you know, the division of labor and all these other different things. So I think that, yeah, there are, there's so much that, that we could discuss. And even though I, I know that I've said a lot here, like, trust me, there's so much more to sort of. So what are you saying? We need a part two of this, yeah? I would be down for a part two if you are, you know. Absolutely. It, it, oh, come on, man. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we got to do a series. I'm doing a whole Issa series now. Like, yeah. come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, could be, it could be spicy. But yeah, and, you know, it. this is something that, you know, I, I, I deeply care about. Um, I think that uh, I, I just want to encourage Western feminists in particular to really reassess their understandings of the sex trade, sexual exploitation, consent and power dynamics, and to supersede the more liberal horizons of so-called sex positivity and all of these different sort of more bourgeois movements. It, it is just utterly devastating to me that so many communists think that it is okay to sort of coddle people who are willing to solicit sex from women who are literally a part of an underclass, who have nothing really to them, who are pushed out of these sort of formal forms of wage labor and, you know, the the enclosures of of civil society itself. And it, it really sort of fascinates me the way that people will say, you know, all work is exploitation, but then sort of rationalize that exploitation once we start to challenge things that they are personally sort of benefiting from. And I don't think that anyone needs to be a so-called evangelical or a Puritan or any of these things to recognize that reality. Not to mention that the majority of people who allege that we are Puritans have no idea what the Puritans actually believed, and they couldn't name five of them if, if you actually ask them, right? They have these sort of Wikipedia caricatures of ideological positions and what motivates them, and it, it's it's very silly. But... <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> I'm wary. I'm wary of making this the part two today, so I'm gonna stop the episode to here. <laughs> People can follow Isa on Twitter. I'm going to put handle in the episode description. Please like, comment, subscribe on the Malcolm Effect. And honestly, Isa is an ocean without shores when it comes to theory so people can hit me up feel free to hit me up and i'm we can like plan an episode around topic that you want to hear about as well until next time peace out